0: Well, let's open a word of prayer and then we'll get into our study for tonight father We thank you that we can gather as a body of Christ here tonight and Lord. Thank you for Rudy uh, Leading us in this music Lord um, All of our sustenance comes from you Lord the air we breathe, everything you've given us your word your Holy Spirit the church um, Father we thank you for uh, Calling us to be your children for giving our sins through the work of Christ Thank you, Lord. We don't have to work for our own salvation, (laughs) that it's a gift from God, Lord. We don't have to join a certain church. We don't have to um, follow a certain plan other than your plan of salvation, who is in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. You've kept it simple, um, and yet it's so complex at the same time. And so we thank you for our salvation we thank you, Lord, that you've gathered us here and pray that you'd open our hearts and our eyes. Keep us uh, focused tonight as we look into your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we've been in a little series on discipleship. And uh, uh, last week, uh, Kai took us through part of Genesis again. And I think you're stowing for next week? Okay, good. So he'll, he'll be teaching next week as well. And uh, but we've been in this study of discipleship, and um, tonight we want to look at John 13. And uh, I heard this uh, story about a college student, and uh, he was in his junior year, and his GPA wasn't doing too well, so he thought he had to find a class that he could take and get a good grade in. So he saw on the curriculum there was a class, and Ornithology, anthology, which is the study of birds, and he thought, how hard can that be? That'd be easy A, right? So he takes his class, and his plan was going well through most of the semester, and it came down to the final, and he thought he had an A in the bag, easy. And he sat down to take the final on the final day, and he looks at the sheet of paper, and the professor basically had, um, the final exam consisted of 25 pictures and they were each kind of a, uh, a question. And the 25 pictures had really only uh, one thing on each picture. They had a set of two pairs of legs from a bird. And then it said, identify the bird based on the legs. So the professor kind of threw him a curveball, right? And he got upset, and he thought he saw his A you know, fleeting <laughs> as he's looking at these legs. He, he don't know what he's looking at. And uh, he thought, this is ridiculous. And he, was, he got more and more angry. And before he even put anything down for an answer, he just got up from his desk. And he went up to the professor's desk. And the professor said, can I help you? And he said, this is ridiculous. This, what kind of test is this? What kind of final exam is this? And he's making a big show. And he goes, you know what? I'd rather take an F than take your stupid exam. And the professor said, that's fine. I'll give you an F. What's your name? And the student pulled up his leg and goes, you figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he walked away. I think he still got an F. Um, now, that's kind of a ridiculous story, right? But the point is this. Sometimes you cannot always trust what you see. You can't always trust what you see. Uh, Sometimes it's hard, sometimes, to identify what you are looking at, what you see. You don't always have all the pieces. You don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. You don't have all the evidence. And we've been in this series on discipleship, and we've asked ourselves the question, what is a disciple of Christ? And we said it's someone who is a genuine follower of Christ, who models their life after Christ, who emulates Christ. And we began to ask the question, what does a true disciple of Jesus, someone who is genuinely following Christ, what does their life look like? Uh, What do they look like? What do they act like? And Jesus, as we saw throughout the Gospels, repeatedly, he always says, you are my disciple, you are a follower of mine indeed, or he says, you are my disciple truly, uh, if these conditions are met. He always puts that, if you do this, if you do that. There's a conditional clause there. Um, And if the conditions are met, it's going to be evident to everybody that you're my disciple, that you're a follower of mine. And this is proof that you are sincerely, genuinely my disciple. Now, let me clarify, because we've been saying this over and over and over again. No one, listen, no one becomes a disciple of Jesus through behavior. That's not how you become a disciple of Jesus. You don't become a disciple of Jesus through behavior. You can't behave your way into a relationship of God, with God. Do you understand? It's um, so important that we get that because the church is full of people who behave a certain way so they think, oh, they're a disciple. See, so you have to believe your way into becoming a disciple of Christ. You believe. Over and over and over again, the Bible says that you must believe. You must believe. We covered that in the first uh, first week. And that word believe means to put your whole heart, your faith, your trust, everything that you know, you, you put it on Christ. You put it on the work of Christ. Because Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Uh, He has borne our sin on on the cross, right? He took it upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin by his sacrifice on that cross. He bore the wrath of God that was meant for you and me. He took it upon himself. It's hard to understand this, but God treated Christ on the cross with every sin of every person that would have ever believed in Christ, was put upon Christ on the cross, even though he was perfect in every way, and he never committed one sin. He took all of that sin upon himself. And so he bore it on our behalf. And then the Bible says three days later, after he died, he died for us, he rose from the dead. See, these are things that we need to believe in. You can't do a certain Performance, you can't do certain things that are going to earn your way into heaven. And so I'm, I'm trusting in that. I'm trusting in the work of Christ as a follower of Christ. I'm believing in His work. I'm not believing in my own. Why is that? Because my own's not perfect. Every day I fail, falter, whatever. Uh, if I had to keep myself saved, I would have been lost a long time ago. It's God that does this for us on our behalf. Um, But here's what happens. Um, When we sincerely follow Christ, when we sincerely put our faith and trust in Christ and we become his disciple, we become his follower, guess what? The Bible says our heart changes. He transforms us. That's why you've probably heard the term born again. Oh, he's born again. Well, the reason we had to be born again was because we were so bad off, we couldn't just fix it up. (laughs) We had to be completely reborn, the word means, from above. And so our heart has changed. And because our hearts have changed as his disciples, as his followers, and you can track this throughout the New Testament, whenever anyone started following Jesus, look at the lives of the 12. I mean, these weren't um, a bunch of choir boys. Okay, there were fishermen. One guy was a tax collector, the worst possible person in society, basically. Um, you know, as far as criminality, made a made bunch of money off other people's uh, income and things like that, took advantage of people, Matthew. Um, you had people from all sorts of life, but one thing in common, when they followed Christ, their hearts changed, and therefore, what happened? Their behaviors changed, right? So while I believe into discipleship, you have to, you have to believe into discipleship. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself that will just make you automatically a disciple of Christ. I believe in becoming a follower of Christ, but our our behavior will catch up and will reflect our following of Christ. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to see as we're going through this study on uh, discipleship. And sometimes we see in people's lives people get a little bit of behavior on the outside, right? And so we think, oh, they're they're a follower of Christ. Be careful. Be careful. Because it might look like there's some evidence there of new birth. It might look like, wow, that, that person may be born again. Um, and, and what happens is sometimes you can maybe behave for a little while, but not believe. You, know, you just look around and see what people do in church, and you come and you do the same thing. You just emulate the people around you. And you do it for a period of time. Generally, people can do that on Sundays very easily. Um, but you can't believe and not have your behavior reflected. It's impossible. You can't be a follower of Christ, a genuine converted soul, and not have any change in your life. You can, have, you can make change in your life and not be a believer, but you can't be a believer and not have and not see the change. So here's what we've been looking at. What are these behaviors that change when you come to Christ? And this is very, very elementary, very elementary. For a lot of you, but it's important. What are these behaviors? What are these attributes that should be evident in the life of a follower? What does it look like? What's the evidence? So you say you're a Christian? Well, big deal. Anybody can say that. Show me. Because we have people all around us who are saying they're disciples. I've been a Christian forever. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a churchgoer. I'm a church member. You know, I'm a deacon. Who cares? That means nothing to God. Absolutely Nothing. Um, because their life outside of Sunday does anything but emulate Christ. They emulate the world six days a week, and then they come on church on Sunday, and they put a little mask on and and act religious. And everybody's supposed to go, wow, what a wonderful Christian. They're here every Sunday. I mean, that's great, but you can be here every Sunday and not be converted. (laughs) See? And so it confuses the world when people see that. Would you agree? When people see people going to church on Sunday and then the rest of the week, they're living like the devil. I mean, that just, the world goes, whoa, what do they call them? Hypocrites, hypocrites right? All right, and then you have these people that say, well, I don't, I'm not going to go to church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. I'm like, well, what's one more going to hurt? Come on in. <laughs> right? I mean, in a way, we're all hypocritical sometimes. Um, when our words say one thing and our behavior, our ways say another, that's hypocrisy. And so the first week, week when we looked at what is a disciple, what is a genuine follower of Christ, we said that they abide in the word of God and they're faithful to carry it out. They, they spend time in the word of God. They abide in Christ. And you know what? When they don't, when they fail because we're not perfect, what do they do? They repent. They repent. They recognize that and say, Hey, you know, Lord, I haven't been spending time in your word. I haven't been spending time with your people. I haven't been going to church. I, I, I'm sorry. Help me do better next time. They recognize it. They don't try to cover it up. Um, they turn from it and they turn back to Christ. But they're faithful because they're abiding in God's word, they're obeying God's word. So a disciple is someone who abides. And then, secondly, The second week, we looked at a genuine disciple not only abides, but a genuine disciple, what do we say? Surrenders. Remember that? Surrenders. That's a hard one. It's hard to surrender. Nobody likes to surrender. Um, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to, what's the first thing? What is it? Well, before that, deny yourself. Right? You have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You have to surrender. You can't come to Christ with a proud heart. I'm going to make my own path to God. No. You you will not be saved if that's in your heart. Um, And then we looked thirdly, not only abide and surrender, but we said last week that real disciples, followers of Christ, what do they do? They serve Christ. They serve Christ and his people. And I don't know if you have figured this out, but I found this out a long time ago in ministry especially. You cannot keep someone who is following Christ, someone who is genuinely a disciple of Christ, you can't keep them from serving. You don't even have to talk them into it. As a matter of fact, a lot of times, even people in our own church, you know, some come up, well, I'll do that. Well, we're already serving in the kitchen and the children's ministry and the prayer ministry. And the, you know, maybe let somebody else do it, right? But they just want to serve. They just want to serve, 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 serve. Uh, you can't keep them from serving if you're truly following Christ. Now, you know, you have people in the church that well, I didn't know what we were supposed to do and nobody asked me to serve. And so, you know, if you're a genuine disciple of Christ, you're not going to wait for somebody to ask you. You're going to get busy serving Christ. I remember when I first got saved, I had nobody to disciple me. I was going to Indiana University of Pennsylvania working on a degree in criminology. I went home for... Period of time, about three or four weeks, talking to my brother on the weekends. Finally, God saved me. And I remember I was an RA. I went back to college. And the first thing I thought, I said, i got to go to church. And it wasn't going to be the Catholic Church because I wasn't getting anything out of the Catholic Church when I went. So I found a, a, just a church down the street. It, was a, it happened to be a Baptist church. And uh, I showed up that Sunday, didn't know anybody, which was kind of intimidating. But I didn't care. I said, I, I need to be taught something because I had just been saved like the week before. I had a little King James Bible, Scofield Bible that the pastor gave me. And, and that's all I had. And so I showed up at that church and this little old man met me at the door and I got there early, about 20 minutes early. And I remember he's folding bulletins, you know, sitting at this little table in the narthex of the church. You know, oh, hello, young man, where are you from? You must be from the college, you know, one of those kind of guys. Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, well, you know sit down here with me. You know, you can help me. He started handing me these bulletins. And I'm like, oh, what do we do here? Just fold them half. And it's okay, fine. You know, And you put this paper in there. Oh, great. You know, pretty soon, I mean, here I am folding these bulletins. And then, you know, it's getting closer to 10 o'clock when church starts. And he goes, young man, you mind? I'm, I got duty today handing these out. Why don't you stand here and help me? I'm like, what in the world? I, I don't even know these people. So there I am, shy Steve Converse, handing out these bulletins. I'm like, who are you? You know, these people. Oh, I'm helping Harry over here, you know, hand out the bulletins. And it, it, just, it just was a natural thing. I didn't intend on doing that. I didn't ask him to do it. It just kind of flowed. That's what happens when you follow Christ. When you're a genuine follower of Christ, you don't have to wait for someone to ask. You find ways to serve. You want to use the spiritual gifts that God has given you um, because, you know, and you want to serve others because they're connected to the body of Christ, and that's the whole purpose. Now, today, we're going to look at if you're a sincere follower of Christ, if you're my disciple, Jesus says you will love. You will love. And this is a big subject, so we're going to kind of go through this quickly, but if you're there in John 13, most of us know that the love chapter in the Bible, in the New Testament, is what? 1 Corinthians what? 13, right? Well, the love chapter here, really, in the Gospels, is John 13. John 13. And it's amazing because John, if you read through chapter 13, and we're not going to do that tonight, we're just going to read a couple verses at the end, but if you read through... Uh, John 13, in verses 1 through 12, he uses the word love 12 times. Probably depending on what translation they're about. And then, basically, through the end of the book, he uses it 45 times. And the reason is, he's quoting Jesus. And Jesus consistently used this word, love, love, love. It's always coming up over and over and over again in his conversations with people, in his teachings. And we find what Jesus is talking about here in John 13. We see here that in verses 34 to 35, he he talks about this new commandment. And and let's just read it. I'll just read it for you. You can follow along in your Bibles. John 13, verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then in verse 35, he says this. By this, by this love you have for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, do you think he's trying to make a point here? I think so. I mean, just how many times you use the word love there? Um, if you have love for one another over and over and over again, it's love, 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 love. The badge of a Christian, the emblem of a Christian, is love. It's simply love. And this is what we're going to see tonight. Um, the most important assignment, I would say, that any Christian has is not that you go out and your hand tracks out. I mean, that's important. It's not that you come to church. It's that you what? It's that you love. It's that you love. And particularly within the church that you love one another. That you love one another. Now, I'm going to start off here with a little phrase. And it's there in your outline. It says, Jesus gives an 11th commandment with an explicit example for an eternal impact. He gives an 11th commandment. What, what is this? What do you mean? What do, what do you mean by the 11th commandment? Um, well, look at what he says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. A new commandment. Jesus gives them a new commandment. Now, when Jesus said that to his disciples, when he said they're all gathered around him and, and, and he says to them, hey, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Where do you think their mind went? What do you think they were thinking about? Old Testament, probably thinking about the Big Ten, right? Not the conference, the Big Ten Commandments, okay? The Big Ten Commandments. Um, A new command, wait a minute, If we already got the Ten. We got a lot more than the Ten, but we got the Ten. But now I'm going to give you a new one, he says. Um, Now just stop a second and think about that. Think about the... You could say the audacity of Jesus, really, to say that he's going to give them an 11th commandment. He's going to give them a new commandment on top of the 10 that they already have. And it's going to be as valid and it's going to be as authoritative as all the other ones throughout Scripture. Um, I mean, what if I came up here tonight and said, you know what? I I got a new commandment for you folks. It's going to be the 12th commandment. And we're going to add it to the 11th of Jesus. You would say, what? Who are you? (laughs) Right? Who who do you think you are? Are you serious? You're actually going to give us a 12th commandment? You're going to add to the Decalogue? And then the 11th that Christ already gave us? That wouldn't be popular. Okay? You're going to add to the most popular and most known part of Scripture? Really, Steve? Come on. You're going to add to God's Word? I don't think so. And you would probably say, who do you think you are? Well, they may have thought, Jesus, who do you think you are? That may have been going through their head. Well, I'll answer the question. Who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's God. And you know why? Because he is. (laughs) He is. It's it's not hard. It's not a trick question. Uh, You see, what he is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to add to what I've already written. He's affirming his deity. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, eternal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, he was on the Mount Sinai when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, you know what? I I participated in all that. I helped (laughs) in all this. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to add to my earlier writings. I'm going to give you a new commandment. See, don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus Christ didn't over and over and over again say that he was God. He did it all the time. He did it in various ways. He did it through his actions. He did it through his words. And this is just another way that he's saying, he's saying to his followers, listen, I am God. I am who I say I am. Because where does Scripture come from? God. Only God writes scripture. And so he's saying, I'm going to give you some more scripture. I'm going to add to the commandments. I'm going to give you the 11th commandment. I'm going to add to it, and you're going to do this just like all the other commandments. You're going to love one another. And so he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, it's it's not new in the sense that they never heard it before. Right? Think about it. I mean, it's not like they, you know, this was like just rocket science to them. Well, wait, wait, we knew about loving God, and, and we understand we have to love God, but we're actually supposed to love one another too. You know, no, it wasn't new information to them. It's not new in the sense that they never heard it before. As a matter of fact, remember in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, um, one of the the people of the the lawyers, one of the Pharisees came to him. He said that he was an expert in the law, and basically they asked Jesus, "What's the most important commandment?" in in Matthew twenty two verses thirty seven to forty, and and what did Jesus say? Here's what he said. Here's his answer. And he said to him, to this snotty nosed lawyer that thought he knew more than Jesus, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, with all your or with all your soul, with all your mind." And then he says this in verse 38, this is the great and first commandment, and, oh, there's a part A and a part B to this answer, and a second is like it, what did he say? You shall love your, what? Neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he gave him a two-part answer. One is you've got to love the Lord your God. The second one is you love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus was saying the center or the focus of the law has always been the heart of God. Has always been the heart of God is what? It's love. It's love. It's love. It's always been that way. Do you realize the only thing that God will not take from you is he won't take away from you your love. He will not take away from you your love. Um, he may take your job. <laughs> he can take anything else. He may take your spouse. He may take any resources you have, your house, your car. He may even take your life. But he won't take your love. And the reason is because it's not love if someone forces it, right? Right? I mean. You can't make someone love you. You can try, but you really can't. You can't force love from somebody. It's not love if it's forced. It has to be what? It has to be freely given. Right? That's what true love is. That's what a love relationship is. That both parties, sincerely, they voluntarily, they give their love to one another, and God will not take your love. He will demand that you give it to him, but he won't take it. And so he's saying, "Love God and love others." This is kind of the center that this command, this new command. And it seems kind of odd, in a way, uh, because Jesus says, "This is a new command I give to you, that you love one another." Well, what does He mean? Well if it's, if it's not new in, in this sense, well, how is it new? He said it's a new command. Well, it's new in two ways. And you can write this down. I don't don't think it's in your outline. It's new in scope, and it's new in ability. It's new in scope, and it's new in ability. It's not new in the sense of time. They've heard this before. They've heard this before. But it is new in the sense of scope, and it is new in the sense of ability. Because remember, he's been telling them, look, I, I, I am going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to die. He's been telling his followers this. And he begins to explain it all. He begins explaining to them, I'm about ready to go to the cross. And this is really the night before he's going to be tried, and then he's going to be crucified, what we're we're reading here. And and so he's been explaining to them, but what does he say? He says, he tells them, don't don't worry, I'm going to go to the cross, and then I'm going to be gone, but I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send you what? helper right i'm going to send you the holy spirit and the spirit is going to empower you he's going to give you the ability beyond what you have right now because you know what you can't love one another right now as god calls us to do we can't do it in and of ourselves. as a matter of fact romans 5 5 says and hope does not put us to shame because god's love look at what it says has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So the Spirit of God, as followers of Christ, has been given to us, and he lives within us, on the inside, and he gives us the ability to do what God commands us to do, because we can't do it on our own. The scope is we are to love like God loves. Wow. Think about that. Just ponder the love of God. And and yet he calls us to do that. Um, We sing about the amazing love of God in our hymns and in our choruses and our songs. It's, It's amazing that he loves us. Think about this. He loves us in spite of what we've done in spite of what we think of him, in spite of how we've treated him, in spite of how we've sinned before him, in spite of what we are. The Bible says he takes us and he makes us what he wants us to be. Because he loves us. And now he says, I want you to love one another that way. What? Really? How? I mean, we love singing about how God loves us, But what we're talking about here is that disciples, true disciples, genuine followers of Christ, love others that very same way. Let me ask you for a second. I mean, don't raise your hand or anything. This is just for you to ponder in your own heart, okay? Um, Do you love others this way? Do you love others the way God loves you? Um, do you accept others unconditionally? The way God accepts us? Uh, do you serve unreservably? Do you wholeheartedly forgive when you forgive people? See, That's how God loves, and that's what Jesus is saying here, is is I'm giving you something new. I'm giving you a new commandment, not one that you've never heard before, but it's different in scope, and it's different, it's new in ability. I'm going to give you the ability to do this. You don't have to try to hunker down and do it yourself because you're not going to be able to. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you the ability to apply this love that God has for you, and you're going to show it to the people around you. Um, that's what he's talking about. So that's the newness of it. And he's going to say here that this is the example that I have set for you. So we have the 11th commandment. The second part here is an explicit example. Number two, he, he shows us an explicit example. Look at what it says in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Well, then what's it say? Just what? As I have loved you, Jesus says. There's the example. I'm giving you an explicit example of how I am demanding you to love one another the same way that I have loved you. Do you realize that in the New Testament, as Christians were commanded to love 55 times? Now, if God tells you, one thing one time, that should be enough, right? Because he's God. (laughs) But when he tells you something 55 times, you know, it's kind of like if I come up and take a a pen and I poke you in the arm with it, you probably, hey, what'd you do that for? That didn't feel very good. But if I just sat there and did it 55 times, I'd probably get a little more than, you know, just a verbal response from you, right? It would get your attention. Uh. I mean, this is what he's trying to get across. When we get to heaven, I mean, do you think that it's not going to be mentioned? How we love one another? How we love one another here on this earth? Do you think that we're going to get to heaven and we're not going to be held accountable of, for how we love one another right now? Of course we are. Of course we are. This is our greatest assignment, to love one another. To love God Um, and we love God really our love for God should flow out and and it and and it flows over to our love for one another so that's the 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 greatest assignment he has the clearest example and he says as I have loved now you love now we have the Old Testament we have the New Testament we have the completed Word of God right they didn't back then what they have they had Jesus (laughs) In the flesh, right? So they were seeing this firsthand, lived out before them. And so they're looking at Christ, and you know it's, they probably had a little different perspective than we do, because they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. Every, everything that he did, they were, they were part of. And so what are the characteristics of Jesus' love for his disciples? Let's, let's drill down on that a little bit, to see what, what he meant by this. What does this love look like? Well, first of all, you have to understand that this kind of love is an action, not a feeling. It's an action, not a feeling. Jesus' love, one of the characteristics of Jesus' love is action. It's not based on feeling. Now, I don't have any problem with feelings, I'm not a real emotional guy. I get emotional as I get older a little bit, but, but for the most part, I, I'm not a real emotional guy. I mean, I have the emotion of anger, which is a bad emotion when that comes out. But I mean, as far as just you know, crying in a movie, I, you know, once in a while I'll hear a song and tear up, but I, I, I keep my emotions pretty tight, okay? Um, he's not talking about emotions here. Not that emotions are bad. Some people are very emotional. That's great, God bless you. I am not one of those people, okay? And God gives us all in different ways. And I used to kind of beat myself up for not being emotional. But you know what? As I've grown older, and especially in the area of being a chaplain and things, and going into a family who just lost a, a, a young child to SIDS or, or someone who's committed suicide in their home, I mean, if I was an emotional wreck, I would not be of any service to them, right? And God just gives me the wherewithal to look at all that stuff, process it, and zero emotion. I just do what I'm supposed to do. See. Not everybody's geared that way, but some people are, and there's a reason for it. There's a purpose for it. Well, when we're talking about love in the Bible, uh, the word love in scriptures, basically, there's, there's um, not all, all of them are in scriptures, but there's four words in the, in the Greek, in the original language. Eros, which talks about a romantic, sensual love, which within, happens within the confines of marriage, by the way. You have storge, which is a familial love, a uh, love amongst brothers and sisters, family members, kind of a thing. You have phileo, which we get the the word Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. It's brotherly love between believers. And then you have agape, a divine love that comes from God. Well, here's the word here, this divine love. And it, it really is a love which involves a decision of the will. It's not necessarily an emotional kind of word. It talks about making a decision to love somebody. All right? It's a decision of the will. It's not an ocean of emotion. It, it, it's not the quiver in the liver. You know, It's none of that. It's a decision. I am going to love this person. Um, now, you know, sometimes we have emotions that come out in, in loving ways and things like that. But this is a decision of the will. So it, it, it's kind of You know, when we see other people in the church, all right, um, you know, when I see people in the church, you know, my heart doesn't instantly just well up with emotion and I get all teared. Oh, I miss you so much. No, no. You know, do I love you? Yes. But it's a decision. It's based on a decision. Um, And if it was based on my emotions, guess what? One Sunday I may love you, one Sunday I may not. Right? So it's very wise To base this kind of love on a decision. Um, Some of you are looking at me like, "Oh no, I just love everybody in the church." Oh man, what's wrong with you, pastor? I just love all every uh, liar. You know, no, (laughs) that's not true. You know, I don't believe that. Did you know that you can love other people, and you can love your spouse, and you can love other people. You can love people at your job, people in the church, love people all around you and not feel love toward them. You can love people all around you, whether it's your spouse, whether it's people in the church, whether it's people at your job, and not necessarily feel love for them. It's very important that you understand that. Uh, This word agape is talking about that. It's a decision to love somebody. Not because you have some warm feelings in your heart, but you're deciding to love them. See, God is is not directing how we feel toward other people. He's kind of saying that's irrelevant at this point. But how are you going to act toward other people? And if that is based on your emotions and your emotions only, guess what's going to happen? You're you're, going to be an emotional wreck. He's talking about action. This is not a, a passive love. Okay, this is an active love. And what we decide to do basically in spite of how we feel towards someone, that's this kind of love. And why do we do it? Not because we feel it, but because what? God tells us to. See, this is what he's saying. He says, you need to love one another not because you have some warm, fuzzy feeling toward one another. Jesus understood this better than anybody. I mean, he he lived with these guys for three years. You don't think Jesus got angry at times? You don't think he got frustrated? All in a holy way, mind you. But you know, how many times are I going to tell you? I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I, I am going to, you know, and these guys can't even stay awake while he's praying. You know, it's, it's crazy, right? He was frustrated at certain points in his flesh with his disciples and their inability to understand what he was trying to communicate to them. They didn't get it. They missed it completely. But you know what? That didn't affect how he acted toward them. Um, Think of it this way: um, How many of you, as moms, how many of you have cooked supper for your family when you did not feel like doing it? <laughs> right? I mean, some of you are going, "Yeah, it's every night," <laughs> right? I mean, go in there and slave and you know create this meal, and they all complain about it, right? Well, why do you do it? Not because you feel loving affection, and, and oh, you get it back from them. No, you, you do it because you made a decision to what? To love them. You made a decision to love them. Um, I've never met a mother, really. Oh, I can't wait for, t- it's getting close. It's four o'clock. I get to go in the kitchen and, and cook this meal for my family. I'm going to slave away over the oven and for hours, and then they're going to complain about it, and half of them won't even eat it. But uh, I just love it. No. They do it. Why? They do it because it's the right thing to do. They do it because they love their family. Your actions, not your emotions, are on display. I'm going to do this because I love you. I, I love the fact that God gave you to me. I'm providing for you. I want you to grow up and eat nourishing food and be strong. I mean, how many of you rejoice over the fact when you got to sit down every month with your checkbook and start writing checks to people? Oh, the PG&E bill went up. Oh, You know, I've never met somebody who goes, oh, this is so much fun. I just can't wait to write the checks out and watch my account just be drained down by the bureaucracy that surrounds us. No, that's not fun. But you still do it. Why do you do it? Because you love your freedom. What do you mean? Well, stop paying your bills for a while, and you'll see what I mean. Pretty soon, somebody's going to show up at your house. They're either going to kick you out of the house or arrest you, or you're going to lose your freedom. But you do it in spite of your feelings. You don't want to write all these checks, but you have to. right? You act based upon, I don't want to go to jail. How many of us go? To work at times. And we don't want to go. We don't feel like going to work. But we do. We we do this all the time. It's all around us. So we understand the concept. And so what he's saying here is how you love is how I'm loving you. This is what I want you to understand. Um, His feelings toward his disciples probably got hurt at times. He would get upset, frustrated with them. He was a human being, even though he was God. And all this was under the cloak of holiness, there wasn't one angry word that wasn't righteous anger that came out of the, 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 word, the mouth of Christ. But his feelings toward them weren't always this warm, you know, fluttery vibe. You know, oh, I, you guys, I just love you so much. Let's just hang out. No. I mean, just look at what he tells them sometimes. Right? He, he told them some very hard things. See, um, we get all that from where? We get that all that, that 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 idea of love. We get it from where? We get it from the world. It's all around us. Um, that that love is a feeling. Um, someone said it's kind of, it, it kind of feels like you're an octopus on roller skates, right? You're just you're a mess, you know, when you're emotionally in love, you know, emotionally. You're unpredictable. You're uncontrollable. And if you don't feel like that, if you don't have this quiver in your liver kind of thing, well, then you must not be in love. And all the songs in our in our society reflect this. I mean, from my age, you've lost that, what? Loving feeling, right? Um, I can't... Uh, I, I just can't help falling in love with you. Right? That song. I mean, all these songs are just... It's it's this love thing, and it's kind of like you just fall out of a tree, and you don't even know it's happening. Um, and so then we end up in a place in our relationships and in our families where we go, you know what? I just don't feel I love you anymore. And we wonder how do we get there? How do we get there? Because we've been constantly fed this lie, and we eat it over and over again, we sing it through the songs, We, all this stuff, and and as soon as we believe it. And God says, no, 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 because real love is not a feeling. Real love is not a feeling. Love isn't passive. It's not what we feel, it's how we what? Act toward others. This is what Christ wants us to hear. It's not something felt. Real love is something that is chosen. Something that is decided. That's why people can stay together even when they they don't feel the love. Now, if you do the things that love does, what happens? The feelings come, right? All the feelings of love come. You get those feelings. But the focus, what Jesus is sharing, it's not on the feelings. It's it's on choosing to do what is the right thing to do, irrespective of your feelings. And so he says, love one another like I've loved you. It's not about my feelings. It's not about what I'm choosing to do on your behalf. It's doing something for someone in spite of the cost or the consequences. That's what true, genuine love is. And that's what he's talking about here. In 1 John, he says the same thing. 1 John 3, 18, he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, in, or talk but in deed and in truth. One translation says it this way, and it's kind of a dumbed-down version, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. It says, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. See, that's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, I'm amazed sometimes when you talk to people who, you know, if you're out visiting and, and on vacation, you get to go to another church or whatever, and you start talking to somebody in the church, and, and they'll say things like, you know, oh, I just love my church. I love my church. You know, and you're like, wow, they're really in love with their church. This is great. You know, so sometimes I always ask them this question. Well, yeah, you really love your church. Oh, it's a wonderful church. I just love coming to church here. Well, where do you serve? What? What do you, what do you mean? Well, where do you serve? I mean, if you love it so much, you must come early, get plugged in, and you're probably helping around here on the campus. Oh, no, no. I, I, but I just love I, I love, I love this church. And what are they saying? They're saying, I love coming to church. They love coming to church. Well, you love your church so much, man, you, you must... Give a pretty big offering. Oh, no, I, I can't afford to do that. Now, come on. That's, that's getting a little personal there. You know, and they, they just back off the whole thing. And based on their feelings, what are they saying? <clears throat> I love attending church. I love attending church. That's what they're saying. Um, and, and, and when people are in that kind of a situation, you can assess them pretty quickly. And that's why so many people are hopping around from church. To church to church. And inevitably when they leave the church, they'll say, You know what? I just don't see love in that church anymore. And they move on to a new church. And it's the, the best thing that ever happened in their life for about two months. And then they begin to realize, wow, this is the same, just like and, and they can't figure it out. It's not the churches they're going to, it's them. It's them. Um, Their their love is based on a feeling. It's not based on a decision. It's not based on an action. See, when, when we come to church, we should come to church to serve because, what? We love the Lord. And we love one another. We give because we love the Lord. We love one another. We act because I choose to love. I want my love to be shown to those around us. It's not just in Word or talk, but indeed and in truth. Love is doing something for someone else that they really need in spite of what it might cost you. That's what true love is. And let me tell you, that kind of real love always costs. It's always going to cost you something. It's always going to cost you something. Real love always costs you Sometimes, You know, some of you uh, love our church and you serve in our church and we're grateful for that. And sometimes serving in the church means that, guess what? You got to get here before anybody else is here. You got to get here to, you know, uh, get ready for this or get ready for that or do something in the Sunday school or in the kitchen or whatever. That's a cost. You're paying a cost. In your commitment to show your love. There's some sacrifice involved. And we're doing it because we, we choose to act. We, we want to do the things that we're, what, called to do. We're not here just to watch. We're not here just to be a spectator, a fly on the wall, and just consume, consume, consume. We're here to give. That's what real love does. Uh, Romans 5.8 eight. It shows us this, is the kind of love. It says, but God demonstrates, he shows his love for us, and that while we were what? Still sinners, yet still sinners, what? Christ died for us. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is love in action. You could say it that way. That's what the gospel is. God demonstrated his love. It, it wasn't that, that, that... He felt all gooey and, you know, this weird feeling inside his heart for us. No. He says, I want you and I'm acting on your behalf despite of what it's going to cost me. And it cost him great. It cost him the life of his own son. So the gospel is love in action. And and the gospel, somebody said this, the gospel always blooms best and spreads most when it is in the atmosphere of love. You know, when you have people that are filled with hate that are trying to preach the gospel, it's not going to work. It's counterproductive. And we've all seen people like that. Um, But, you know, our prayer is that when people come into our church for the first, the second, and the third time, what do they walk away with? You know... you know, yeah, it's great to hear, oh, that was a wonderful sermon, or oh, that was a good song, or what are they supposed to walk away with? Oh, the food was great. You know, I, I pray to God that they walk away and they say, boy, how those people love one another. It's just off the wall. I pray that's what they see. Because we sing about how God loves us, but it's demonstrated in how we love one another. It's not about how we feel toward one another. You know how people who don't know us um, know that we love each other. Somebody comes here, they don't know us. But how do they know we love each other? They can see it in our, our actions. They see it. They see it. How we serve. How we give. How we're humble. How we speak. How we care for one another. How we pray for one another. The kindness that we show to one another as the church. I mean, if you read some of the early historians who, um, some of them weren't even believers, right? Josephus, others, first century historians, um, they weren't believers. And they, they, they began to look at this church. Uh, they called it a sect, or they called it the way, right? Um, this Christianity in the early, early formation. Uh, they looked at it, and, and they didn't talk about what these people believed. Necessarily. That was part of it. But it was a small part. Uh, They were more amazed by the love that the early church had for one another. That's what blew them away. And they would describe, they they serve one another and they help one another. We don't see this in anywhere else. They they give to one another. They, They even live with one another at their own cost at times. Helping someone out. And these aren't believers who are saying this. These are are unbelievers. They're looking at a church in the early ages and going, wow, there's something different here. There's a love here that they have that we don't see in our society. And they were impacted. John was deeply impacted by these words from Jesus. So action is, is love is an action. It's not a feeling. This is what Jesus wants. Now there's feelings that go along with love. I know that, I'm not saying that there isn't, but We can't base it on just our feelings. Secondly, Jesus says love is inclusive, not selective. Love is inclusive, not selective. Jesus didn't go around picking and choosing who he's going to love. Well, wait, he chose his disciples? Well, yeah. But he just didn't love his disciples, right? I mean, he loved other people. He showed and he demonstrated love to everyone, to the Jews the Gentiles, to the rich, to the poor, to those who were religious, and guess what? Even to those who weren't. Um, everywhere he went, he demonstrated this kind of love. Uh, now, one of the ways we can see this really is even in the context of John <clears throat> 14. John 14. If you don't know, and uh, John 13 is, is where uh, where Jesus comes in and, and you know, he, he, he takes off his, what, his, his, his robe and he, he puts on a towel and they're all gathered there. And what does he do? He begins to wash his disciples' feet. Remember that? And this was, in their mind, totally out the lunch. Like, they're thinking, this is ludicrous, Jesus. What are you doing? You know, the master is washing our feet. And you have that one encounter where, oh, well, you know, you're not going to wash my feet. <laughs> well, then you're not going to be part with me. Well, then wash my whole body, you know. It's like, well, wait a minute. Um, they couldn't imagine Jesus stooping down and doing such a thing as God, as a son of God. But you know what's interesting? You know, I've, I think one time as a youth pastor, I washed somebody's feet. This is an illustration, but other than that, it's not, it's not something that, is meant it's a prescription for the church. Okay, we have a foot washing every Sunday between two and four or something. No, it's not meant for that. It's an illustration, right? Um, but the one thing I noticed when I was doing it is the person was sitting in the chair, this kid who kept on laughing because I was tickling his feet, but uh, I was trying to wash his feet. And I noticed when I was down on my knees and washing this kid's feet that it's hard to look down on someone when you're washing their feet. <laughs> You can't, right? They're up there, you're down there. You you can't look down on someone. Um, And so Jesus takes on this role, this illustration of a servant. He gets down on his knees and he's washing their feet. Now this is the very last night and he's got everyone around him. Uh, This is, the, the 12 disciples are there. And, but guess what? There's one. Right? There's one disciple who's not a disciple. Right, Judas, he's not a disciple. He's not a true disciple. Let's say that he was following Jesus because he was putting on an act, but he wasn't a true disciple. He's numbered among the twelve, but we know that in his heart, he's not a disciple. He's not sincerely following Christ. He's not part of the family of God. And yet, what does Jesus do? Um, Jesus knew that. This wasn't a surprise. Jesus knows everything. He's God. Um, He knew who Judas was. He knew what Judas was going to do. And yet, what did he do? Do you understand? He still washed Judas' feet. He he still served Judas. Do you know where Judas sat during this important Last Supper? He sat in the place of honor, right next to Christ. Wow. Wow this guy's going to do me in in a matter of moments. And yet, he was sitting in the, the place of importance. And Jesus even did this in the supper, and you can read it for yourself. He tears off some bread, he sops it in the cup, and he says, hey, you take and you eat this. So he fed Judas. This is one of the most intimate signs of love and friendship when you would do that in that setting. So Christ is reaching out to this traitor. <clears throat> and now think, when Judas leaves and he left, right? He leaves, his feet are clean because Jesus cleaned them. His stomach is full because Jesus fed him. And yet, he still leaves. And yet, he still leaves. He, re, he what? He rejects the love that Jesus demonstrated. He looked at his love and he said, nope, not gone there, Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand. And Judas felt remorse afterwards, went out and hung himself. And he, from what we know, was not repentant. What I want you to hear is no one goes to hell because they're unloved. No one goes to hell because they're unloved. They go to hell because they're what? They're unforgiven. They're unforgiven. They're refusing God's offer of salvation. Jesus demonstrated his love to Judas. He washed his feet. He sat right next to him. He fed him. All those things were intended to say to Judas, you don't have to do this. I'm offering you, come to me. This is your time, Judas. This is your invitation. I love you. I'm trying to show you this. And what did Judas do? No thanks. (laughs) I got 30 pieces of silver waiting for me, man. I'm out of here. No one goes to hell because they're unloved. They go to hell because they reject the love of God and they go to hell unforgiven. And Jesus demonstrated that he loved his enemies. He demonstrated that over and over again. And he did so because he wanted to teach us how to love our enemies. doesn't matter whether they're enemies on Facebook or social media or political, whatever, different lifestyles. We have no right from Scripture to not demonstrate love because even our enemies right, we are to love them. We are to love them. Um, In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said this. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And that's what he just did with Judas, by the way. He demonstrated how we can do that. He fed him. He washed his feet. He loved. He cared. And yet Judas still rejected. It says, Do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek... Offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Please hear what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that we have to approve of what people do. It's not about approval. When we love someone, the Bible says we should choose to love them. We choose to serve them. We we choose to put ourselves down and lift them up. We choose to be humble and not to be arrogant. We try to choose our words carefully rather than just blurting them out. Sometimes that's hard for me to do, but it's important that we do that. We're not advocating what they do. What we're saying is, you know what? I love you with the love of Christ in spite of what you do. In spite of what you do. I don't agree with what you do, but I'm going to love you in spite of it. Because it's less about who they are and it's more about who God is, right? It's less about what they do to me or do to you. It's it's more about what God has done for me. I want them to understand that. So I can love you despite what you do because you know what? He loves me in spite of what I've done. And he loves you in spite of what you've done. And so we're able to look at other people through the lens of how much we've been forgiven and what he's done for us and how he's loved us. And when we look through that lens, we're able to choose even when we feel otherwise to love someone. Now, there are times, you know, you'd see things on TV and you just, ah, you, know, <laughs> you know, and it comes out, right? The rage comes out, uh, whatever it might be. But that's when we have to ask the Father, you know what, help me. Help me to pray for our president. Help me to pray for this Congress. Help me to pray for these, some of these religious leaders that are going off the rails theologically. Um, help me to choose love, because it's not about how I'm feeling toward them. It's about doing what I know to be right and acting on it. It is being inclusive, not selective. God doesn't love anyone. You could obviously say this. God doesn't love anyone more than me. We all could say that. But you know what? You could also say he doesn't love anyone less than me as well. It's almost like a two-sided coin because his love is not selective, it's inclusive. And he's taught us how to love that way as well because that's how God loves. What does it mean that he, you know, uh, he, he doesn't love the world in the sense that he loves everything that is happening? Okay? He doesn't look at the world and go, oh, I love the sin, I love all this, I love that. No. It's not some warm, fuzzy feeling that he has for every single person. But really, God loves, his, his actions are based in love and the best interest of all people, with perfection, every single time. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they come to him or not. It doesn't matter if they belong to Christ or not. God is love. Therefore, he cannot act in an unloving way toward anyone even his judgment and wrath upon someone who rejects his love is loving it has to be because he couldn't do something that's unloving because he's God does God love everyone yes he shows mercy and kindness to all if God didn't we'd be dead the people around us who weren't Christians would be dead immediately Does God love Christians more than he loves non-Christians? I would say no, not in regards to his merciful love. Does God love Christians in a different way than he loves non-Christians? Yes, he does. Why? Because believers have exercised faith in God's Son. They're, they're, They're saved by God's grace. God has a unique relationship with Christians. And that only Christians have forgiveness based upon God's eternal grace. And it's this unconditional, merciful love that God has for everyone that should bring us to faith, realizing that you know God loves me. He gave his only son for me. We should receive that with gratefulness. And he says, I poured this love into your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now you know what, Christians? I'm holding you responsible for loving other people. The person next to you in the very same way that I loved you. That's a big responsibility. And it's one that's downplayed in the church a lot. It's the greatest assignment with the clearest example. It's not an action, or it's an action, not a feeling. It's inclusive, not selective. And lastly, it's sacrificial, not self-serving. It's sacrificial, not self-serving. John 3.16 says it so well, right? Um, or, or 1 John 3 16 excuse me by this we know that he laid down his life for us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers the Bible says that he laid down his life for us that's salvation that's what Christ has done and we are called to lay down our lives for one another because of salvation so the reason is different but the cause is the same it is love it's love it all comes back to love he loved us so that we could be saved, and now we are to love others because we are saved, and so it's sacrificial, and it's self, um, uh, it's self, ser- uh, self-serving, not self-serving, excuse me. And so we sacrifice, and we talked a little bit about this last week. Uh, you know, we serve, we we sacrifice our time, uh, and when you stop and, and you think about it, it's. You know, today, I think in churches across the board, we have a tendency to to take church way too casually, way too casually. You know, I mean, I think if most of us treated church like our job, we wouldn't have a job. Really. You know, we just have this freedom and we think, well, you know, yeah, I'm supposed to serve in the nursery. I'm supposed to be there at nine, but, you know, I got there at 930 or whatever, it's just too casual, way too casual. And we just think, well, it's, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, so when we say, hey, Jesus, I love you, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Oh, I'd, I'd die for Christ, sure, you know, but you know, I just can't get there on time. Come on. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, when you stop and think about it. I mean, that's what the story of the Good Samaritan's all about, right? In many ways, Jesus tells this story this Good Samaritan. This guy is, is you know, he's robbed, he's broken, he's, he's, he's left to die, basically, all along on the road. And these two religious guys come and... They don't even want to go near him. They, they cross over on the opposite side. They don't want to get tainted. They don't have anything to do with this guy who's in the gutter. They don't want to touch him. Because if they touch him, they might lose their holiness, they believe. Um, and so they just stay away. They don't want to be unclean. And then Jesus says, you know, along in the story, I'm hurrying it up here, but then the Samaritan comes. And everybody in that day would who've heard that a, that a Samaritan was coming um, would know that they were not loved by God <laughs> in their minds. They just thought, oh, these are, these are bad people. They're kind of half-breeds. And it's like they, they were unfit for God's love, these Samaritan people. God didn't love Samaritans. And, and, and Jesus uses this illustration... One who is seemingly unloved by anybody. And yet he's the one that actually demonstrates love in the story. He bandages up this guy that's in the gutter. He takes care of his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him all the way to town. He puts him in a hotel. He puts him to rest, gets him some food. And then he says, you know what? If there's anything else you need uh, to the innkeeper, I'll take care of it. I'll pay for it when I get back. Total stranger. And then Jesus asks the question, who is the loving one? Who is the one who's really loving his neighbor? And of course they knew as the one who was seemingly unloved by God, who is showing the love of God. And I think the whole point of Jesus' story with the Good Samaritan is that we realize that every single person, every single person that you look in the eyes is either this. They're either a victim to exploit, a problem to avoid, or a person to love. A victim to exploit, a problem to avoid, or a person to love. That's what Jesus is saying. And of course, in light of the gospel, we're the broken ones, right? We're the ones that need the Savior. Uh, we're, we're the ones that Jesus came to save us. But every single person is a victim to exploit, a problem to avoid, or a person to love. And he's saying, you know what? I want you to love one another with that kind of love that I'm giving you. Um, and those, that kind of love is not cheap. You know, Sometimes we understand that salvation is free. We don't work for it. It's free to receive. But you have to hear me on this. It will cost you everything to live it out. It's not free to live as a Christian. Our salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. That's what Jesus said. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. Salvation is free. Last thing is for an eternal, uh, eternal impact. He says in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you got the 11th commandment with this explicit example, and then he goes for this eternal impact. And look at what he says. He says, by this, by what? By this, by this selfless, serving, sacrificial love that I've shown to you, when you show it to others, this is how they will know that you are my disciples. If you do this, this is evidence, that this is proof that you truly are following me. Do you know why this kind of selfless, serving, sacrificial love is characteristic um, and and why it stands out in believers, and why it stands out in followers of Jesus, you know why this is the number one thing that people see and focus on? Because it's the only characteristic of God that Satan cannot counterfeit. It's the only characteristic of God, think about it, that Satan cannot counterfeit. Satan cannot counterfeit selflessness. He cannot counterfeit sacrificial love. And so when we display what is sacrificial, when we give ourselves away, when we lay our lives down, when we are humble and we lift other people's up, and when we serve and we sacrifice and we give, people don't see that. They don't see it in any other people because it's the one characteristic of God that Satan cannot counterfeit. And so Jesus says, by this, your selfless, sacrificial, self-serving love, this, by this... Everyone will know that you are my disciple. We are to be a living proof of a loving God to a watchful world. We're to be a living proof of a loving God to a watchful world. I remember reading this story and close with this illustration. And it takes place in World War II. And it's a group of soldiers. And They went to battle, and and one of their comrades got hit and was killed. And they thought, hey, it's only right. We got to bury this guy. You know, he's our close buddy. So they went throughout the village. They found this church. It was a Catholic church and had a grave uh, cemetery beside the church. And so they went in and they asked the priest, the parish priest there, they said, hey, sir, you know, our friend's um, dead. He's our comrade. We, We would like to give him a proper burial. Can we use a place in the graveyard? And the priest said, well, (laughs) is he Catholic? You know, we got rules, too. You know, is he Catholic? And they said, well, actually, no, sir, he's not. I I think he's Protestant. And the priest said, well, you know, we got rules, and only Catholics can be buried inside of the fence of the graveyard. But you know what? I know you're in kind of a fix here, so um, why don't you bury your, your friend outside the graveyard? outside the fence. It's okay, just take a plot out there and you can bury him there and everybody will be happy. And they were elated. They were like, oh, thank you. you know? So they had a little funeral there for him. They buried him. They went on and, and uh, you know, several months later, the war was over. They decided once more to meet up around the graveside of their buddy who they were going to leave and go home back to the States. And they came back to this church and they went back to where they buried him, but they couldn't find their friend. They couldn't find out where this place was. Um, they couldn't find where they had actually buried him. They looked everywhere, and finally they, they went inside to the priest, and they're kind of distraught, and they're saying, look, you know, we're looking for our friend. We just want to say goodbye one last time. We looked everywhere for him, but we can't find his, the gravestone that we put there and, and where he was buried, and the priest says, well, you know what, after you guys left, I got to thinking. And uh, it just isn't right that your friend was going to be buried outside the fence of the graveyard, And uh, his friend said, "What do you do? do, Move move the body? I mean, you know, they were kind of." And he said, "No. I moved the fence. I moved the fence. See, none of us, when it comes to salvation, deserve to be inside the fence of God. Not one of us. Not one of us. But you know what he did? He moved the fence. He moved the fence through his son." And through his grace, he moved the fence so that we could be part of his family. And that's what he's telling us to do. There are times when we look at other people and we don't act in love. I'll confess it first and foremost. We don't speak in love. You know what we need to do? We've got to move the fence. We've got to move the fence. Father, we thank you. For this word tonight, I pray that it would fall upon eager hearts that want to do what you desire us to do. And Lord, we ask that, Lord, if we're not loving, if we don't have Christ's love, we don't have anything. We're just like a clanging symbol that's irritating to people. And so, Lord, I pray that we would examine our own hearts here tonight. I pray for each individual that's here. I pray that they would reflect on their love for you. And uh, your love for them, more importantly, that you gave your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and, and to be buried and to be raised the third day, victorious over sin and death, so that we might put our faith, our trust in what he has done for us, so that we don't have to do anything anymore. We can trust in the work that was done for us. I pray if there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they might cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, show me my need of a savior. None of us are perfect. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways before a holy God, but we need forgiveness. We need grace. We need mercy. And that can only come through Christ. So we pray that our hearts would be drawn to you. Thank you. Pray you bless our fellowship now. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.